Hello and welcome to Under the Surface, a podcast that takes a closer look at advances in marine science and innovation. I'm your host, Neil James, and in Series 1, The Pollution Experience, we talk to experts dealing with issues and solutions surrounding marine plastics and oil pollution in the north. Hello and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Joan Darcy and Dr. Julian Marul, co-founders of Plastic at Bay, a community interest company which started in the Northwest Highlands near Cape Wrath and is now based in the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. I'll be talking to Joan and Julian about their work monitoring, collecting and recycling marine plastics. Joan and Julian, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Neil. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> hello. Great to have you here. Uh, I guess we should start right at the beginning. So would you please be able to tell us at Plastic at Bay and your current roles there? Okay, well, I'm... Uh... Jun Mo and uh, I'm one of the director of uh, Plastic at Bay and I take care of uh, mostly the strategy and the research um, in the company. My name's Joan, I'm a director and co-founder of Plastic at Bay and I take care of um, kind of fundraising and um, project proposals and project management that side of things. Excellent. Now I can imagine there's a, there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done so um, I imagine it yeah. keeps you very busy indeed. Um, yeah. So n- now we're going to be talking about your work um, in the north of Scotland and I understand you've done a lot of work monitoring and quantifying the amount of plastic debris that washes up there. Uh, would you be able to tell us what possessed you to get started doing this? When we moved to Durness, um we quickly realised that there was a, a big problem with plastic in this area to a level that uh, it was hard to imagine. Um, I have a, a background in, in geology and geophysics and um, I was just realizing by just cleaning and walking around um, the really vast amounts of plastic washing up very regularly. After our first beach clean where we collected uh, I think a half a ton of plastic uh, in a relatively small area of Balnakil Bay, we quickly realized that uh, just volunteers and the our own will will not suffice to kind of um, solve this problem or at least maybe not solve it but uh, improve the situation. So um, we created Plastic at Bay with the idea of um, professionalizing uh, the remediation, the, yeah, the depollution of the coastline basically and to find a way to finance that and um, also to inform obviously uh, the public and authorities about what was the situation there. We we got lucky with the first funding where ex- because it's very hard to nobody wants to pay to uh, clean up the mess of others. It was very hard to fund um, you know a cleanup service, so we created a coastal ranger kind of role, which was monitoring the the plastic very regularly on the coastline. Let me have just 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 make a, a little pause here. So one of the main issues I had when I was cleaning on my own after work was I was taking all this plastic, all this material, and I was putting it to the skip and I know it goes into landfill. And due to everybody knows that plastic doesn't degrade and just gets into smaller bits i was just thinking well i'm just putting it into a hole which is a different kind of problem than into the ocean but it's just someone will have to deal with it because it will still be there in 
hundreds, thousands, who knows, years into a landfill. We thought that this had to be addressed and we realized that there was no infrastructure to recycle the kind of plastic we were finding. So we were like, oh, why not, you know, trying to finance the ranger service with a recycling project. So, and, and that really opened up, I would say, Plastic at Bay into the kind of complexity it yeah. is now. <laughs> Many arms. Um, because obviously a ranger is a, a tool for communicating with the public to, and, uh, you know, uh, coordinating volunteer work. But it's also monitoring and it's also has, uh, uh, it's very effective because we have no vehicles and tools and techniques to clean really deeply polluted areas. Uh, of course, based on the experience. And uh, on the other hand, there are some specificity on the plastics, which are going to be, I would say, maybe 60% uh, fibers from ropes and nets. So which, which are from in industrial sources at sea. And, uh, and maybe 40%, which will be hard plastics, which we can, which are easier to recycle in a regular stream. But once again, the honest, I mean, where we were based, uh, is very remote. So any shipping, any movement of this pollution towards a, a center, which can cope or which has the will to cope with these kind of debris. It's just impossible because it's too expensive. It doesn't interest people. So that's why we, we develop our own recycling techniques, uh, our own machinery, and uh, by collaborating uh, nationally and internationally with people. So for those that don't know, the Donetsk, as you, you kind of mentioned there, is, is very remote. It's on the very far uh, north coast of uh, Scotland in the Highlands. Um, and so it's, it's, I guess, really far away from recycling centers, from any kind of... Um, you know, large um, plastics recycling companies, perhaps it's it's so that creates its own challenges. I guess Did you, is that what you found? Yeah, obviously. I mean, it's just um, financially, it's it's not functioning. I mean, the the plastics uh, already the plastics from the household waste collection is are are not um, recycled locally, and I I would think they are not even recycled in the UK. There is um, a stark lack of uh, recycling facilities in the UK and maybe even lack of technology to deal with. I think the most recent statistic is that although the UK say it recycles 46% of its plastic, 58% of that is sent abroad and oh, wow. often it's, it's not traceable and they don't know if it's put into places for, with correct uh, waste management facilities. I mean, there's been plenty of stories um, in the news where you see Tesco packages in, I don't know, Turkey and um, I think it's Turkey's the main place that they export to now at the moment. And it's, it's interesting because you started by, you know, seeing the amount of plastic that's washing up locally and, and that first beach clean you mentioned you half a ton of plastic and now and plastic is, is light. So that's a huge volume of material. I guess going to the idea that like, plastic is a global problem, that's presumably not plastic that's um, from local sources that could have been from anywhere did you kind of get a sense of where the plastics were coming from or is that just impossible to tell yeah so Neil this is true so Durness is, is a very low population um, and there's no major industry on land and there's no major river system so in fact everything we get is in the ocean or the waste that we get is generated at sea 
and what we actually pick up is could be up to 90% from fishing and aquaculture so it's a lot of fishing ropes and nets mainly about 30% of what we get is from net cutting so these could be from mending a net on on a ship or uh, in the harbour uh, we get a lot of items from aquaculture such as fish farm pipes that would be something that we'd get on a regular basis um, during the winter during the winter storms so any one winter we could get up to 200 meters of fish farm pipes washing up on the shores around their nets and um, also what we get which is a very local source is um, MOD, the Ministry of Defence, do manoeuvres on Cape Wrath and we get this kind of heavy cotton webbing, they'd call it. So this is from, um, what is it from, Jean? It's like parachute parts or... From the flares? Yeah, from the flares. So they, they bomb an island out there they, and get... They don't use much flares at the moment, but they've yeah. been using it for years and years. And, and um, yeah, it, it represents several hundred kilos uh, just yearly on Barnacle Bay. Yeah. Of debris. But uh, I mean, in terms of the long range, uh, I mean, I think a lot of the material, I mean, is very difficult. I mean, we've identified some um, brands of uh, fishing nets and, and ropes which are manufactured in the UK. So we're, we're fairly, sure, fairly sure it's localish. I mean, I don't know from how far, you know, boats can fish quite far off. There are, of course, a lot of debris from Canada, you know, um, we regularly, Canada and, and uh, the east coast of the US, when there are big storms, we, we, we can identify products um, which are from there. And uh, that's very regular. I find yeah. almost each beach clean, I would find something which indicates uh, something which has crossed the ocean. But in general, these are relatively small debris. Very large debris, for example, would be the dislocation of a fish farm feeding system, which is uh, made of uh, hundreds of meters of uh, pipes. And these are, are common sites or, or farms which have been abandoned and not dismantled. Um, you know, nets, ropes, offcuts, as we say, about 30% is just rope offcuts for mending the nets. So that would be something of unknown age. It's unclear if they accumulate specifically in that zone or if they are constantly produced. Um, that's something we're working on at the moment to, to try to find solutions to help best practice uh, regarding uh, this, uh, this waste from, from uh, industrial um, fishing activities. So I would say it's a mix. I would say it's a mix. Um, big, in the absence of, of tagging in the UK, of course, you will notice more the, the American and the and, um, Canadian uh, krill or, I mean, pot fishing equipment because they are tagged. So, and they are geographically tagged, so you know where they come from. But it's not the case in the UK, so there is a massive bias in knowing exactly what's where your debris come from when you pick up something yeah which which is local there's another thing which happens that people don't really realize is plus is a vast diversity of plastics and there are many different fishing techniques and we are going to collect 
mostly polyolefin, so polypropylene and polyethylene-based uh, fibers from the ropes, which will correspond to a certain kind of fishing. A lot of the fishing gear is also in nylon, which is denser than water. It's quite rare you, you find it. So this is kind of a filter. Um, what we record on the, the, the coastline is not the war activity, I would say, of the pollution in the ocean. So the, the sea really acts as a filter. I think in Cape Wrath it was quite exceptional because of the strength of the tide. You know, it's one of the strongest tidal currents and um, of the coast there. And we had a lot of things which were denser than the, than seawater. I don't think you can give a definite answer. The fact that uh, we, we lack tags and um, there is no transparency about the amount of, of gear sold and disposed in, in the UK by the manufacturers. Um, I mean, we know from fishermen, you know, because of course nobody helps them to dispose of their waste. So we that's something we are trying to work on. And, uh, you know, we know how much uh, they need to dispose of in the area of around Derness. But we don't know how much is produced because obviously the manufacturer knows how much uh, is produced. So uh, we could we could know better. I think it's a kind of common theme that there's just huge data gaps around kind of marine plastic pollution in terms of yeah how much material is there is, how much is washing up, where it's washing up, how much is produced, who's producing it, how much goes to landfill. Like There's so many gaps. I think a lot of the public might be yeah. very surprised at how much we don't know. Um, we did a, a survey of um, on the Northwest Coast, just um, with fishermen to kind of gauge how much plastic they were disposing of and in what types. And between the three main farbor, harbors on the West Coast, about a hundred tons is generated. Yeah. Yeah, like annually. So um, and that and that's what's generated in the harbor that's put into skips and goes to landfill. So, um. So that's just an idea. Um, Definitely recently released a report that estimated like the aquaculture industry generates 4,000 tonnes a year of plastic. And that's mostly generated in Scotland on the northwest coast. So this is this is not going to sea, but this is what has an industry they, they generate. Um, and then with fishing it was like 400 tonnes. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I have very big doubts about the quality yeah. of these numbers. <laughs> so I mean, definitely with yeah. aquaculture, it was a very in-depth study. Um, so that's pretty accurate. But yeah. the the fishing numbers don't match what the fishermen told us. So it just doesn't match. It's uh, it's impossible. There can't be only four hundred tons produced in Scotland. It's not possible. Yeah. And in in terms of the plastic that washes washes up on beaches, did you? Get a sense of whose responsibility it is. I mean, you've you've taken on the responsibility there by by collecting it and like helping to recycle and, and. But I guess it becomes a kind of devolved responsibility in the sense that you know, is it the person that that released it? Is it the local council? If it's like around a port area, is it the port authority? Um, you know, is it uh, is it just everybody's responsibility? How, what do you feel about that? Do you get to the bottom of this? This is the question. This is the debate that's going on I, I think, actively as we speak. I, I think as a company, we've tried as much as possible to stay away from the blame game. 
uh, and consider it as I don't know or you can consider it but uh, you know it's a bit the same as uh, the carbon footprint I mean of course you can deal with what's going on now but like with plastic there is more plastic now in the ocean than what we produce annually and is you know you see it's even though the production of plastic is is exponentially increasing whereas we should be exponentially <laughs> you know logarithmically <laughs> decrease it <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's just a it's just a problem of of there are two things there are the things which are already there and I think it's vastly underestimated, at least in Scotland. And there are the things which are uh, which are going on now, which is turning the tap of the pollution. So these are really two different, uh, two different um, aspects of it, in my opinion. And I think they're both a minefield because of kind of a lack of information about what was plastic and I believe a lot of plastic we find is from the 80s, 90s where people thought that you know we'll find a solution to everything <laughs> so and that is a legacy as a society I see what we do as a service the problem is that the population, the government doesn't consider uh, the remediation of our coastline and the development of solution to not uh, increase this volume of plastic by recycling it they don't consider it a service they think this is um, either an amusement or I mean they just don't take it seriously whereas it's a major issue and um, and for the historical plastic I don't see how we can go and say let's say you know a net which has been dropped thrown overboard uh, in in uh, 88 find the owner and and you know <laughs> and just say well no you're gonna pay for the the 10 man hours and the excavator we, we had to use to remove your net from the beach you see what I mean mm -hmm. I don't I, I just don't uh, I don't see that happening I think I, I mean I know it's it's not at all where we're going at the moment, but I think that the, the society, especially in the, the richer countries, needs to accept this legacy. It's the same from the carbon. What are we going to do from all the carbon which was released during the Industrial Revolution? And it's a massive amount of carbon. And are we... Are we accepting that we have to cope with this and include that into the cost of having all what we have now as you know technologically and all the comfort we have or are we just denying that we are guilty of in europe for example of having you know produced massive amount of carbon dioxide and it's the same for plastic i mean scotland is the first i think they, they kind of battle with with norway but it's one of the first producers of plastic in europe right uh, Grangemouth is the biggest plant, and uh, it's owned by the same um, the same company on also a massive plant in Norway. So they they kind of produce massive amount of plastics. Just to finish, me I see it as a service, and not uh, to enter into a legal dispute 
of course, what is produced today should be controlled, at least tracked, and the, the amount of money which is spent to deal with this plastic should return to the people which are actually remove it. That's where I see it more as a service, like uh, the curb collection is working or things like that. That's, that's, that's where, where I, was, um, I was trying to come back to. The plastic that washes up on beaches, do you see that as like no one has responsibility for that at the moment? Is that kind of how it is in kind of local legislation? I think definitely around the north of Scotland and in the islands in particular, um, they're so remote, mm -hmm. but yet the problem is so big that people in power don't see it, you know? So it's hard for us to convey, you know, the severity of the problem. Now, Plastic at Bay have done a good job of it, actually, because we have all this data that we've collected over five years. So, for example, um, recently the marine litter strategy was out for consultation. And that was really good for us kind of leaving the Northwest because we had this opportunity to put five years of work of data collection, photographs and graphs and figures and and data that we've collected from other beach cleaners all around Scotland and we got to put it into one document and kind of give it to Marine Scotland and give it to the government, you know. Mm -hmm. So what they're going to do with that, I don't know, it's yet to be seen because the revised final version is going to be out pretty soon, I think in the next week, I think it was due out the end of September. But what was clear with the first consultation was that nobody's taking responsibility for beach cleaning actually in their section where how to deal with pollution on the coast they didn't mention beach cleaning only in the respect that they would um pay for they would cover the costs of disposal so that's basically saying oh volunteers are doing a great job here don't pay for disposing of the waste anymore <laughs> which is um so i mean we're kind of laughing because it's so ridiculous you know what i mean so yeah. so but people are like ourselves and definitely on the islands, there's a big movement to just try and highlight this problem, you know, and it's still it's still a matter of debate and it's still a matter of funding, because as GN said before, if these areas can't be cleaned with volunteers. There's people on the ground that have to be paid that are working, dedicating a lot of parts of their lives and they're just tired and they're they need if they want to carry on, they, they need to be funded. And you can't have the battle of going out to the beach and trying to clean up this mess and also spend a lot of your time applying for funding, which that's the reality of it. That's the reality of small community groups like ourselves and other ones that are based around Scotland and in the islands. And that's what they're dealing with. And this is, this is actually a hot, topic at the moment that, that a lot of us a lot of these groups are coming together and discussing it and, and looking for a solution and i think that people underestimate the um that, the amount of hard work that goes into all of this and especially you know a large um, fishing net or rope that that washes up and is maybe embedded in the sand and you'll know this better than anybody i mean the amount of effort that it takes to kind of dig that up and drag it and and then dispose of it it could well, be yeah. i have when we i found a net in in 2018 or 17 on Banlakil Bay. Mm -hmm. Okay, Banlakil, you can drive. So we had the quad and stuff. You can drive to the net, you know, it's not, it's not impossible with a, with a light vehicle. It took me three years to remove it. 
Oh wow. So so much it was big, so much it was deep. Uh, so, you know, you need to have the right tide, the right moment, uh, the time also, uh, because this is volunteer work. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have to earn something which pays the bill uh, on the side. And um, and uh, Orange, at the time, at some point we had a ranger to help, so that, that helped also dealing with it. But it took three years and we could only remove it thanks to a storm which had a weird orientation, probably a similar storm which buried the net in the in the beach. <laughs> and just dug it out. It was seven meters, I think, under the profile of the dunes. Oh, wow. So, I mean, uh, that's another topic we can discuss a bit about. I don't know. It's, it's kind of... Uh, Everything is kind of linking to, to, together. I, I find you can't, when you open one responsibility or one thing, you have another thing. So we, I mean, a lot of, of uh, legislation and regulation is based on the assumption, which I don't know where it comes from. It might be something linked with the geographic repartition of, of pollution. Um, I, I come more from a, you know, I'm a sedimentologist. I mean, that's what I did my PhD on. And uh, I will look at the flux of sediments and of course of plastic. And we see plastic as something, I mean, probably not you, but most people see plastic as something floating on top of the ocean and then washing up on the beach. Mm -hmm. But already just a, a beach like um, uh, the one on Balnaki Bay um, has vertical movement of sand yearly of I measured at least eight meters every year, and then there are exceptional years. So eight meters on three kilometers of sand on several hundred meters, these are, uh, you know, cubic kilometers of sand moving. And in this sand, there is plastic. And a lot of it, you know, in, in very small bits and also in bigger bits that we collect. So when you go on the beach, what you collect is it could, there's a part is going to be just washed out, but there's a part which wasn't in the beach or which was buried uh, in the sand just offshore nearby or deeper and got broke by a very intense storm like we have here, you know. Already at government level or at legislative level, this is not accounted for. Mm -hmm. We consider only the top surface. And it's, it's just, um, it's a bit like if you have an oil spill, you know, or an industrial site, everybody knows that if you want to do the remediation of the industrial site, you need to do the surface, but you need to go deep and see if the water was contaminated and all that kind of things. And it's the same with plastic. Yeah, there's certainly a lot, a lot of plastic in the sand for sure. Yeah, but I mean, we know, I mean, we've, I've tried to quantify that for five years and uh, I, I can, I think it's about, for the macro, I mean, the big pieces we can see, it's uh, 60 to 80% of the volume of plastic, oh, if wow. you look at it uh, into a year kind of cycle. Mm, that's really interesting. Uh, especially to give it some numbers around it and you you meant you touched on it there and you mentioned earlier about this this kind of five years worth of data is there anything that kind of struck you from that that you kind of found that was particularly uh, poignant or interesting um, you know, what what was it that you you found after that kind of long-term study i 
think the sad thing about it is is that it's so consistent, you know. So it's not it's not stopping, you know. So we we weigh we go and clean Ballinakil Beach once or twice a week and we weigh it, we put it into a graph just with like a cumulative weight against time, you know. Mm-hmm. And this the slope of this is consistent, so it's not it's either growing or staying consistent, but it's not slowing down, you know. Um, and we see this from other data that we've got, like the the Kate Ness beach cleans. Uh, you know them; they're obviously based in Kate Ness. They do great work cleaning, and they give us all their data, and we put it into our uh, research portal as well. And the beach is like done at beach. It's um, it's amazing the the work they do there. So we've calculated that they could collect like four tons a year, and on average, about eleven kilos comes in a day, and that's consistent over the last since. When did the KNS Beach Clean start? Like 2018 or 2019? So it's just the fact that, like, after we did our first beach clean on Ballinakil Beach, which is 500 kilos, you think, job done, that's it then, that's grand. And I think a lot of people do that if they get involved in a beach clean somewhere, you know, as, a, as an event. But in fact, that's not it. That's not the end of the story. It keeps coming all the time. And that's why you need people like us and all the great community groups around the coast to just keep on cleaning. Somebody has to do it, you know. So I think for me that was it. I mean that's why we're still going was just the realization that it's not it's not going to stop. And in fact when you find things that are so old, you realise, okay, well this is fifty years old, so in fifty years time is our daughter going to be cleaning up stuff that, you know, we've thrown away, you know, so this is and it's, so it's going to be going for tens, not even tens. I wish hundreds of years like this is what's in the ocean now. People are going to be cleaning up. So that's a that's the sad realization of it. And yeah, the, the, the value there of the volunteers and just the, the amount of time that people give, for, you know, unpaid yeah. time um, is, is extraordinary and um, certainly, yeah. certainly welcome. Uh, I'm interested in the kind of types of plastic and um, like how you because I, I know you're involved in kind of recycling of plastics as well, which is how, how do you tell um, what is polyethylene, what is polypropylene, what is nylon? And, you know, I know some of the ropes and things can be a mixture of these. That, that's I've always kind of seen that as kind of a, a bit of a nightmare in terms of recycling. Uh, how, how do you how do you know what something is? Well, it's it's a nightmare if you want to mass produce from it. Um, so everything all our recycling approach is low tech. So we, 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 we try to reduce the carbon footprint of recycling itself. I mean, recycling is, has a very low carbon footprint compared to making raw virgin plastic, as you, you may know. I mean, just in a big factory, it's already, I think, six times um, less energy needed than to extract uh, and, and, and uh, create the, the said plastic. But I think when you do precision molding, you need a very precise control on the composition because it's very uh, precise machinery, very complex things. So all this, the strategy of our recycling is to actually remove as many uh, uh, industrial processes to actually be efficient in a lot of environments, not to have a town transform into a plastic recycling plant like it is done today because that's what people want that's what the government 
wanted the one. They wanted one place, they do everything, and everything is possible in that place. And these places take very little plastic because it, it's so constraining, as you say, there are mixes. And so the way we mix the plastic doesn't really matter. As I say, most of the floating plastic we will collect will be polyolefins. So they're going to be HGPE, uh, LDPE, so polyethylenes and polypropylenes. So they're the same uh, family of plastics. And we separate them uh, by... So we have experience uh, from, uh, from testing them. So you can do flotation tests. Uh, there are flame tests you can do. We don't do the flame test, but we do flotation tests. But then also we also look at the manufacturers because we know the brand of uh, the ropes, for example, and we can know the composition more or less. So, uh, so if there is, for example, um, a lot of polyolefin and by accident there is a little bit of nylon in it, for what we do, it doesn't matter. If you put that into a high precision machine, well, you may break the machine or it will incur, uh, you know, uh, days of cleaning up the machine. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so we focus ourselves. We don't do nylons because it's too complicated. And we think that, uh, there are new developments in the UK with a factory, which is doing depolymerization, which is really the future, in my opinion, of, uh, recycling of nylon. We do mechanical recycling, old fashioned mechanical re recycling, which is a technique people think it's, it's, it's new, maybe, I don't know, but it's, it's, it exists since the 60s and it works since the 60s. And we make uh, things which are tolerant with, uh, with, with uh, approximate uh, formulation. Because the big difference also is that, I mean, and that's a bit complicated if you, because people maybe think about nurdles with uh, plastic pollution with pellets. It, when the plastic is made, it, it goes through several phases where it's transformed for the application. So you have really virgin plastic where there is nothing, and that's the one where you, you would often find a lot of toxic pollutants uh, in the sea. And then the for the function, for example, for making a net, there's some very specific chemicals in it. And uh, it's going to make, uh, they're mostly, uh, the ones we, we work with are HGP net. And they will have um, um, very specific proprietary formulations that we don't really know. But then if, if it's too stiff or something, you can always mix it. Or you can just re reduce uh, to a few products you, you find interesting for, for, that, for that particular material. We've collaborated with a few uh, lab and uh, people, small manufacturers of uh, of plastics, and uh, and they have to adapt. They're not too used to that, but they have to adapt their product to the plastic they receive, or to limit the range of products they can make based on the plastic uh, we send them. It's really interesting because it's people buy um, I don't know a bottle of uh, fizzy drink. You don't necessarily care what type of plastic that is you're not you're not buying a um, <laughs> polyethylene or a polypropylene bottle you to you to the person buying it you're yeah. buying the drink so you don't really care about 
um, the material, but then you're responsible for that, for the disposal of it. Um, and so yeah. I think the general public probably don't realize the kind of complexities of uh, the different types of polymers. Um, and even, you know, fishermen, they, they want the, the function of the fishing net. They don't necessarily yeah. care, you know, whether it's polyethylene, polypropylene. I know that, you know, that has implications for the, for the use. But um, it seems like if you, if, you buy, if you buy a product, um, you are then kind of responsible for its, its disposal. And that may be quite complicated to spend, uh, depending on whether uh, you have local recycling facilities that, that take that material. Even though you weren't buying that material, you were buying the product or the use of it. Um, and so you I mean, guys... John has, has, has done amazing research on, on you know, ropes and nets on, on these kind of problems, you know, about the composition uh, and calling manufacturers sometimes yeah. to know the composition and they don't want to reply, obviously. Well, I think sometimes you just don't know, you know. Oh, it's made in China. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Weaved so in... I was like, oh, I just wanted to know, you know, this uh, polysteel would be a, a popular rope that people would use in, in creels. And I just wanted to know what was the composition of it. I couldn't find it online because it's just everything is this polysteel with trademark, you know, the trademark symbol on it. So when I rang up um, a, a reseller, they said, oh, it's 30% stronger than polypropylene. <laughs> that's what they had on their website. And I was like, but what is it? You know, what's the composition of it? Uh, I think later we found out, because it's such a common one, um, actually we found out its composition through plastic, through the, the big polyolefin fishing rope and net recycler in, in Denmark. We got the information from their their website or just talking to them as well. They gave us a lot of information about uh, tips on, on recycling plastic but, and recycling ropes and nets. But to simplify in the polyolefin world of these ropes and nets, uh, I'm not speaking about nylons. Uh, it's, it's really a mix of, uh, it's going to be a, a mix of polyethylene, or polypropylene, and depending on what you, what, what you you want of the of the ropes like elasticities and stuff like that and then on top they have some very specific additives that we really don't know what it is because that's really what they make their money from what makes the the nets uh, extremely strong for example and things like that and of course if you're finding um uh, nets and ropes on a beach as well it could have all sorts of uh, biofouling and all, all sorts of um and if it's from aquaculture, anti-fouling kind of wax kind of material as well. So it must be quite hard to clean even as well. Not so much. Once yeah. again, it's a problem of precision molding. That's yeah. what recyclers will tell you because they have big expensive machines with a, a gate uh, of a few millimeters uh, the plastic comes through. And if they have any jamming or anything in there, it's the end of the machine. We don't really have these problems. First... Um, I mean, there are things we just don't even try to recycle. I mean, if, I mean, if there is, a, for example, a krill which washes up with plenty of mail and, you know, all kind of corals on it, it there is no point. It's not, we never manage to get it right. We don't have the facility to, to dissolve all the carbonates and all the, the organic matter. So what we do is that we have, a, I call that the washing machine. It's basically a building uh, with no roof. And then the plastic is, is set to be exposed to the sun and the rain for a year and a half. And that removes most of the things. Um, and what is it you're making from these recycled plastics? What products are you, are you developing? Um, so we, we have a set of machines. So each machine does different kind of products. So we, the first thing, because everybody was saying, 
that you couldn't rice, rice, recycle uh, fishing ropes and nets you collect on the, on the beach. I, I've made the simplest machine uh, I knew of, which is a, a compression oven. So it's basically an oven with a, a hydraulic jack inside, and then you melt it and then you compress so that you can make tiles. We make clocks with it, you know, yeah. clock faces, things like that. So that's more like crafty. Then we have also um, uh, a hand press, which allows uh, both to do workshop with uh, children and adults, where you are gonna make small tiles, you can make lettering, you know, for signage, uh, all kind of things, uh, as long as it's not too big. I think you about the biggest is about um, yeah seven eight centimeters, like three inches, kind of maximum for the the width of the object and with a, a flat shape factor so we can do different things with that and then the, where we've we spent most of the time and we got a, a, a an innovation award uh is the, the extrusion so that's that's a bigger machine more complex so with that you can produce continuously plastic and we are working on uh, making fence posts or battens if you want uh, out of uh, ocean plastic so we've done some prototypes the machine is not finished so i can't call that a product uh but the machine i oh know the machine is finished but uh is not uh <laughs> really <laughs> really finalized for for different reasons we had to move and uh it's not finalized, so that's uh, that's what we we hope to do is really these uh, these uh, fence posts. Uh, we were making a lot of little objects. I used to make earrings, lampshades, you know, things like that, which are nice. It's satisfactory uh, to do. It's really fun, and it looks really nice. But then um, in my storage, you know, I was having more and more tons of plastic. Yeah accumulating and I was like we have to find something where we can use this plastic en masse you know so uh, so I was like fence post is an idea and then now we develop a lot of things about reselling uh, the plastic so we we clean the plastic we sort it you know and uh, we sell plastic that we know is of high quality uh, to uh, small scale manufacturers like mostly craft people um, We've collaborated with uh, a guy which makes giant 3D printers. You know, that's the kind of things people which want to know. Because as you say, a lot of people have bad kind of feedback from ocean plastic. So they want to test it. So we send them like raw ocean plastic and they can do whatever they want in their lab or in their yeah. little workshop with it to see what, uh, what it makes. Once again, we are not, this is not household waste, so this is really specific to OIR where you have mostly ropes and, and, nets. and nets and fish farm pipes and yeah, stuff like that. It's really strong material actually. Fish boxes also yeah. are, are, are okay to recycle, it's not too complicated. Fish farm pipes, a good source of black HDP. Okay. Yeah. A lot of this, yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you'd worked um, had workshops with with children. Uh, do you work with schools very much? And who else do you work with as part of Plastics at Bay? Uh, well, we when we were in Internet, we did a, a lot of work with the local schools. So we would have um, two different types of kind of workshops that we would do. One that we do with the teenagers would be 
and with adults we, we do this with adults too um, and other people that are interested in re recycling we do like a day course so you could come we'd go down clean Ballinacale beach come back to the workshop sorted to see what's recyclable and what isn't she then would give a, a good talk about just in general the problem of plastic pollution and what, what we see in the area then they can um like shred the plastic they have and, and make items in the lab so they see it really from the from the beach to something they can take home with them so for groups like we we trained green high from nern uh, they have a low-tech um plastic workshop within Greenhive now and they came to us to actually just before they started it um, for a training session so they got to bring their because they deal with domestic plastic they got to bring domestic plastic with them shredded and they made like a really nice clock you know that was out of all different colored bottle tops which is which is really nice and they got to take that home with them with the kids we have um we have the like letters and numbers so the last time we had the high school they all wanted to make their initials so they got to make their initials out of ocean plastic and bring it home with them um with the younger kids like at the primary school we tend not to focus on cleaning um and this is a kind of a, a conscious decision the plastic have made, have made because we think it's not it's not really their problem we really want to be more to just to teach them something you know um, so what we do with primary school, which is which they love, is we have a museum where we've items that we found from all over the world. So we've like a water bottle from Korea. We've a lot of lobster tags from the um, east coast of the US. We've got a sea bean. That's not all plastic. <laughs> a sea bean that we found in the tropics. Uh, different things that we found from like, I don't know, the Ukraine, just different places around the world. And, and we give it to them and they find it on the map and then we arrow post it so they try to find this journey all the way back to Scotland so they love that and then we would do kind of a, a little material science lesson where we would have to show them the density so you were talking before about the plastic bottle so the lid of a plastic bottle is like HDPE and that floats so we would find on the beach would basically be the lid but it's a little like a little skirt of the bottle around it where it's been detached so that's typically what we'd get with floating material that we would find and then the PET which the bottle is made of actually sinks so once that bottle is shredded up all that PET and imagine all the bottles that go into the ocean sinks to the bottom of the ocean so we would give them a piece of PET from the bottle and the, the cap and just to show to them just to get them to put it in the water and see that one floats and one doesn't you know so it's already getting their brain thinking about you know plastic and what it's composed of and, and how it moves through the environment and then kids just love throwing things into water so <laughs> so we just lay out like loads of the bits of plastic and we're like will this one float or won't it and you know so so that's kind of a more fun more kind of educational thing that we, that we like to do with p1s and uh and we hope that they learn something but they like sticking arrows everywhere and throwing things into water as they say um so yeah that that's kind of that's kind of what we do with the schools that's yeah that's fantastic and i guess it's interesting with children as well because you know a lot of children for a while now they've grown up and you know the problem is um prevalent you know society knows about the problem of plastics i think everyone's kind of uh, aware of it um whereas yeah. i guess kind of our generation it's something that's kind of come to the fore even though it's been you know, it's been a problem for for many decades it's it's really come yeah. uh, into the public consciousness so it'll be interesting to see over the years what what happens with the children who are are, are living yeah. from from day one where this problem already exists 
So what, what do you see as kind of the most important thing that you've done so far? That's a white, quite a big question. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I, I will uh, give, give a real reply. Oh. So we've done it. <laughs> we've done it. Yeah, that's the weird thing, isn't it? That we're still here at Plastic Cafe, right? And it's been... It was not. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the most, uh, uh, I would say, upstream swimming venture I've ever been in. I, I just don't even understand that it's still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's not... We have to rebuild a new workshop, but it's yeah, it's always it's always on the edge, you know, of you know, um, it always it's just always so dependent on like funding and and just support and collaborations that we we never we never know from one year to the next what's going to happen. We always have a long term plan, um, but it, it's just it's always relying on on funding and our time and you know. I have, yeah. I have I have yeah. a question about that at the end, but I won't quite get there yet. Okay. I think yeah, just just that it's here. I mean that uh, we we didn't give up totally. I mean we do less things than we used to do. Yeah. Uh, because we were kind of exploring the vastness of the problem. I think at the beginning, and um, and we were and the isolation of the illness makes that you, you end up with a lot of responsibilities. Now that we are in Lewis, I'm, I'm, I mean, there are already established groups here and more people. And I kind of think that a lot of the things we used to do maybe will, will yeah. just help, but we won't be responsible. Yeah. You see what I mean? We're, we're already part of the um, Island Federation Marine Litter Steering Group. So that's we've had our first meeting with them, which is great. So there's a whole connection of people working in the same area, you know, exchanging ideas and trying to come up with solutions so it's great to just have people to bounce off as well so and in your time working with marine plastics is there anything that you'd say was particularly surprising the scale well the scale yeah the scale i mean as a physicist the scale just breaks my head the scale of uh, it's it's a thing which has gone through a factory that we have produced and it's absolutely everywhere at any kind of scale and still, I mean, it's both the scale and the denial of people about the scale of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's this. It, it's so incredible. I think people tolerate to see it everywhere now. You yeah. you walk everywhere, everywhere on the street, and uh, I dig my craft is plastic, yeah. even really deep. And just people. No, it's a lack of understanding as well of um i think people are a lot more educated about plastic now but just who's responsible there's this huge debate you know so now we were talking about it like um you know they want to close all the landfills or you know here they on lewis they they can't close it because there's no other options and they're like how are they going to pay for things and she just simply said well, why don't you just get tesco's to pay for it because basically that's what you're putting into it there's, there's these manufacturers are making all this plastic and this is why you can't close the landfills you know there's people out there we're picking up you know things from a particular industry so there's people out there who are responsible but nobody's taking the responsibility and i think that goes back to the uh, similarities with with carbon and climate change as well you know people have to start taking responsibility and paying up you know because there's a lot of damage done and there's a lot of of things to be fixed and cleaned 
And what would you say the biggest challenges are for, for Plastic at Bay, but in terms of the marine plastic uh, problem in general? On the local scale, it's the funding. That's always the battle, you know, because you have to pay the bills, you know. Uh, we do. That's the reality of it, you know. I mean, I would love to spend all my time, you know, taking up projects and cleaning and doing all these things. But at, at the end of the day, we have to pay rent. And a lot of people do. A lot of people that clean have lives, you know, um, that, they, that they're dedicating to this and, and they need some kind of financial support. And it's difficult to apply for funding. You know, there's a lot of small pots. A lot of people spend a lot of their time applying for these small fo- small pots of funding um, and it's just it's just so consuming you know and that that's on a small local very internal plastic at bay yeah. level but to, to we, me, a lot of other groups have the same problems and it's to me the, the main challenge of uh, plastic at bay is to is to transform uh, for to a bigger scale um, we've done a lot of ad hoc kind of thing because we lack space you know i mean our lab is is uh, is very 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 tiny and um if we could have more space if we could have you know uh teenagers or young adults which want to train in the things i'm making you know mm-hmm. if we could have you know if we had the space if we could grow bigger take a bigger footprint we could really do a lot for the plastic, I think the main challenge of the plastic, and I know it's not popular, is to remove as much as possible macroplastic from the environment while we can before they become micro and nanoplastics, where we know the toxicity is major and it's uncontrollable. We will never, whatever people say, I don't see in a in your outside lab a realistic way of filtering all the different kind of polymers in plastic. It's not gonna happen. It's impossible. What is micro and nanoplastic in the environment is here forever, I think. So I think the challenge is to remove as much as we can. Stop putting it in, obviously, but what has been what is in the ocean since the 60s or 50s uh, in terms of mass, you know, great increase needs to go. It's it's just uh, a lot of things depend on that. I mean, survival, I would say. <laughs> and I, I was going to ask with, you know, there's, there's always kind of initiatives, there's kind of more kind of government recognition and um you know across the eu there's the extended producer responsibility scheme that's going to be coming in um are you optimistic about the future or or pessimistic uh well i think um a lot of these with the extended producer responsibility is because we understand the complexity of it and you know within fishing gear as, as such because you're like who is who has responsibility because they buy you know ropes from india china then they get made into nets in you know peterhead and then they get sold to kinlock you know so be in, in kinlock burby so it's it's going to be a big job whoever has to enforce this extender producer responsibility 
Now we would hope that if that comes into play, that that could give money then to beach cleaners. You know, that's what we would hope that money would go into that. And there's been talks about it, but just because we've been at this for so long and just with the experience that we've had, we're not very optimistic. So we, we tend to, the way we've always worked is to kind of just keep going ourselves and do what we can. And you can have a small glimmer of hope that somebody in the government's going to do something, but don't rely on it or don't wait for it. I'm a bit pessimistic. We are a bit pessimistic. But, uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, our motivation is to do something and, you know, try something and not uh, just wait uh, a legal uh, magical unicorn that will uh, make uh, i don't know ineos pay the billions of pounds needed to clean the ocean or something like that you, you, I, I don't believe in it well, i think you're right there's certainly a need for a lot of more joined up thinking and for um, to take it seriously for sure now i was, I was going to end with my, my last question which is um if you were to be given ten million pounds funding to continue your work at Plastic at Bay, what would you do and what would you prioritize? We already we've been talking about this. <laughs> oh yes. Even before you asked how much plan. does it cost? Yeah. <laughs> Is that I've, enough? I've been I've, yeah. been I've been it's not enough, but it's I've been quantifying the amount of money needed to uh, remove um uh, the past pollution, not dealing with the, the current because we're trying to to work on what happened already and because there's lots of groups which look into preventing things to happen but yeah with 10 million so i mean the first thing is is a task force specialized in remediation which will support all the groups which are isolated and with no resources yeah uh, to uh, deal with historical pollution quantifying and uh, you know report it and so on after i mean we have a few plans for yeah. recycling but that is the budget is probably uh, cannot really cope with with, with that I think with 10 million we could do a bit of recycling yeah well. no we, we have <laughs> ideas of having a mobile unit you know to help beach cleaner um, to dispose of the things and so that we could yeah. We could uh, we could decentralize recycling. Uh, kind of a recycling screen machine, so to speak. <laughs> so. Yeah. So that could be dispersed amongst the, the islands and to rural places in the highlands. That cost. Uh, yeah. We have plans for that, but yeah. uh, not the funding. Um, but the ideas, but not the funding. <laughs> yeah. It starts starts uh, with an idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, we've quantified these prices. I think um, that's one thing I've tried to to bang on the table as, you know, we, I mean, there's a humongous cost ahead of us, yeah. of everybody. I mean, there's no, and of course, no government wants to pay anything. So, mm. but it's, it's absolutely unethical to leave that to the next generation. I that's what I think. We know now. We know we know what needs to be done. There is no need of. I mean, we're gonna fiddle for a few, a few millions. I would say, but it's it's uh, it needs to start. If you think about it and you do nothing, well, 
you're you're basically um, as complice of the 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 ecological disaster. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, <laughs> I've I think yeah the operations are um, if we want to have an impact, uh, they are multi-million operations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say on a, on an annual budget, it's it's you can probably start to hit the nail. And what we uh, found, and, and this is the the base of Plastic at Bay, is just research, you know. So a lot of people do work, but they maybe a great work, but they might not be putting numbers on it. So ours was to put numbers on it to show the scale, basically. So it's all about scale. So when we showed what a community group could do with small funding to get a ranger, but then when we look at the bigger picture and what has to be done, you, you have to scale up, you know. So you're gone beyond these small community grants funds, and this is the reality of it. So you enter another scale of funding, which you're talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds for a year or two years just for remediation, and the same with the recycling. So so this is the reality of it, you know. So it's it's cute, you know, having a ranger, doing outreach, getting these pots, little pots of money all the time, but it's not, it's not going to solve the problem because it's not on scale, you know. It might be highlighting the problem to a few people, but to we really need to scale up the operations with regards to recycling and definitely with cleaning, and that's another level of money, you know, and that's just that's just what it costs. We have the numbers; we can show you this is the reality of it. This is so cleaning up plastic pollution costs money. I've calculated that it costs five pounds for every kilo of plastic we collect. Seven no, the cost, real cost. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's when you you've washed it. Oh but yeah. Okay. For each, just to pick it up, yeah. Just to pick it up, it cost five pounds. With the vehicles, all the stuff, the insurance, the yeah. the salary of the person which does it, and and that's based on the quantities collected by plastic at Bayer over the years. So I don't know where we are in our research portal, uh, 60 or no, 120 tons. 120 tons, that's from us and other so, people reported. So these volunteers, I mean, except, I mean, except for us where we, we managed to, to find salaries for some of our, you know, for our rangers for a short period of time, uh, you can calculate that uh, you're at uh, 600,000 uh, 600, pounds equivalent of volunteer work. just on the very small scale of what we recorded. And that's just people that have recorded on our website. There's so many other people out yeah. there just working so hard and collecting so much, you know. So so that's, that's just to put it in perspective. Yeah. That's really interesting sure. putting figures on it as well because I think mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately sometimes that's what it comes down to is money and people only see it if it's... Um... Unfortunately it is, but um, this is... Yeah, and the, the other thing about the budget... One of the problems we have, I mean, the great advantage of, I would say, Northern Scotland and uh, the islands is, is, is the vi- you know, the variation of landscape and the little, you know, jewels, you know, in, in one bay, one loch, one mountain and all these things. And, it, and I think it's created a great sense of uh, ownership from local communities. And so each, each local community has learned to just rely on themselves to do things because nobody's helping them so what happens is that mechanically uh, when there are funds and things happening it just 
it focuses on one spot in one place of the territory. And it's a big issue I find for pollution, which is obviously distributed by the ocean all over the coastline. Uh, not in, in, in a uniform way, but in, you know, it's all over the place. So these findings actually kind of kill a bit the movement because as John says, you know, like you get funding, then you have to stop because you have no more funding. You have to do another job to earn money. And everybody's planning for the same funding. You know. So, you know. <laughs> so, in the end, uh, one range, you one know, it's... Uh, could take it from another range or somewhere else, you know. It's, so it's like a, a limping kind of beast, uh, which which can't really uh, cover, you know, the the surface. So, I think the, the, the kind of localism is kind of... Uh, killing a bit the movement of, uh, of people that understood uh, um, what needs to be done i mean there is quite a few actually <laughs> but uh, it's a uh, because of this geographic i mean they are not geographically distant but uh, they it's very hard to reach one point and another you know from one island to another um I mean, everybody can go to Alapu, but um, it, it, it's not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, there might be a need, you know, from on some small island after a storm and things like that, and and these problems are not are not dealt with. So I don't know if it would be more expensive or less expensive to have, uh, you know, a bigger kind of coordinated effort. But we were thinking actually something on the lines of like mountain rescue, you know, so you have this central body, you know, so so everybody coordinates to a central body who could pay rangers, you know, on different islands or different places, you know, coordinate their work. So people are being paid, but you have this like, um, yeah, you have this central body that's controlling everything, doing the admin, looking for funds, you know just doing all the hard work and then but paying the people that need it and then if there's a huge storm and places are really really like get very very polluted afterwards you have this um equipment that you share you know and you have these rangers all over the place so people can then come together and do big cleans and help out so that's why we thought the the mountain rescue was you know that kind of idea but as beach cleaning you know <laughs> that's a neat so, idea yeah yeah well, I mean, I, I for one hope you do get the funding and continue yeah. <laughs> able to continue your work. So, I, you know, if I was on the uh, funding panel, I would um, <laughs> I would certainly approve it. But um, thanks, Jim. If you ever on a funding panel, <laughs> if, I, if I'm ever on one, yeah, I've never been on one yet. So, uh, but okay. uh, <laughs> I'll let you know. Um, uh, Joan and Julian, um, honestly, uh, thank you so much for all the work that you've been doing in this area. I mean, all, all the unfunded work all those late hours in the night i'm sure writing funding applications and all the kind of stress and um amount of energy and effort that you've put into it um it's, it's i just wanted to thank you for all, all the work that you're doing um but also to thank you for um joining me on the podcast today um so uh, thank you very much okay thanks leo yep. welcome Neil. Under the Surface is part of the Popcorn Project. Popcorn is funded by the Northern Periphery and Arctic Programme, part of the European Union's Interreg Programme.